where we left off last Lord's Day as we compared the prayers of the martyrs in heaven with the first martyr, Stephen. And we're going to go back there. And notice there's a profound difference in how the martyrs pray in heaven and how the martyrs prayed on earth. I'm speaking now of New Testament martyrs going back to the story of Stephen. Under the Old Testament, we discover that Abel's blood cried out from the ground to avenge him, to avenge him on his brother Cain, the first homeschooled child, the first home-churched child, Cain. Let that sink in. Because since the fall of our first parents into sin, people are born with a sinful nature. And you can do all kinds of work to reform sinful nature, but until the Holy Spirit effectually calls somebody to a lively faith in Jesus Christ, repentance towards God, it's just water off a duck's back. And so people need more than Christian nurture, though they need Christian nurture, particularly in our time. And so when Cain killed his brother, the blood of Abel cried out from the ground. And then in the Hebrew Bible, the last book of the Hebrew Bible is Second Chronicles. All of the books of the Hebrew Bible are in the Bibles that you have in your hand. Our Bible and the Hebrew Bible are identical. It's just the books are in a different order. And so in the last book of the Hebrew Bible, it would be like saying from Genesis to Revelation, there's an incident where a descendant of the high priest who's speaking out against sin is martyred. And he calls on God to see it and right that wrong. And that's the blood of Zechariah. And so from Genesis to Revelation, speaking in an Old Testament way, the blood of the martyrs cries out for God to avenge them. And we see that so profoundly here in verse 10 of Revelation 6. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? But I want you to contrast Remember, one of the people who's here in the opening of, this, of the uh, fifth seal, one of the people who's there is Stephen. Let's go back to the account of Stephen in the book of Acts. If you'll turn with me back there to the end of Acts chapter 7. And what do we find here? Page 1704. And in Stephen's words, as he's proclaiming Jesus... Remember, Stephen was not an ordained teaching elder. <laughs> Every Christian is licensed to preach. And never forget that. In what sense? You're called on by God to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen was a deacon. But Stephen was a witness for Jesus Christ. And that's what we're all called to be. But you know, there can be problems when you witness for Jesus. Look at verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. If you start talking about Jesus, you will make some people really angry. The world doesn't mind a good person. 
what the world minds is be, to be reminded of its own sinfulness and rebellion against God. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Christ. And so Stephen reminds them of their sin. And they are so mad, they're grinding their teeth in rage. Verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, look at the participle, standing at the right hand of God. As we think about this, all of the other places where Jesus is referred to after he ascended on high, he's sitting. He's sitting at the right hand of God. But what is Jesus doing now? In this moment when Stephen is about to be martyred for the faith, the Lord Jesus Christ has gotten up off his throne. (laughs) Has gotten up off his throne. And he's standing like someone concerned. Like a parent who looks out and sees his or her child about to be injured severely. They don't continue to sit in the rocking chair or the recliner. They stand. The Lord Jesus Christ, this is the one place where we see him standing and he's looking down at his martyr, Stephen. And look at what Stephen says. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What reaction did that get? At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They rushed, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's where we left off last Lord's Day. What do we have here? We have a picture of the way we are to pray in this life, by and large. When we see wicked men triumphing, we should pray for the defeat of their plans. We should pray for God to break the teeth of the young lions, thinking particularly of the demonic forces against whom we are wrestling. But when it comes to the individuals who are perpetrating these things in this life, we should always pray for their conversion and salvation first. And only if they will not repent should we pray for their destruction. You see here, Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is praying a Christian prayer in this life, in this world, for this worldly people. And he's pleading with Jesus, Lord... Don't hold this sin against them. You know that Stephen's prayer is answered because one of the people who was there, who was full of rage, who was a religious zealot, who rode from place to place torturing and imprisoning Christians was Saul of Tarsus. He was there witnessing all of this. He was a witness guarding the clothes of those who took off the outer garment in order to throw stones more effectively. And Stephen's prayer was answered. I believe Stephen's prayer was answered over and over and over again because the first century church until 70 AD when Jesus destroyed Jerusalem through his armies, the Christian church was overwhelmingly Jewish. They were converted to Christ. 
Tens of thousands of Jewish people embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel, including priests. Stephen's prayers were answered, as was the Lord Jesus' prayer. And so he's pleading with them, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Now I want you to reflect with me for a moment, realizing this basic truth. The Lord Jesus was suffering as he stood in concern for his martyrs. Stephen, he is suffering with him. Turn with me, if you will, to the right, the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. So the Lord Jesus gets up off his throne where he's been interceding. And out of great concern, the Lord Jesus stands. And what happens? Let's look at this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. And that is page 1832. Page 1832. Paul writes here, Now I rejoice in what was suffered, what I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is the church. Let's reflect on that for a moment. First of all, Paul is not saying that the atonement of Christ was not sufficient. He's not saying that added to the death of Jesus are our deaths. He's not saying that Jesus' sacrifice was imperfect. And on the contrary, Scripture is crystal clear in telling us that Jesus' death on the cross was a once-for-all-time sacrifice for sins. His blood atoned and took away all our sins. His sinless life is put to our account, and that's what we call the active obedience of Christ. He obeyed God's law and his perfect righteousness is put to the account of every believer the moment that believer believes. But also his passive obedience, that is the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to the will of God the Father and shed his blood so that all who would ever repent of their sins and put their trust in him would be absolutely, totally and completely forgiven and admitted to heaven based solely on Christ's sacrifice. So what is Paul getting at when he says here that he is filling up in his flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? Here's the truth. When you suffer, Christ suffers. When any member of Christ's body is being afflicted, tormented, tortured, Christ is tormented and tortured in that as well. He suffers in our suffering. I want you to understand this. Life is hard. Life is difficult. And in the middle of a difficult and hard life, it's not that God is up there in heaven somehow or another, totally detached, could not care less. I want you to understand that the eternal Son of the eternal God, who was begotten of the Father before all worlds, enters into our sufferings so that our sufferings are His sufferings. When you have cancer, when your bones ache, when you cannot get your breath, 
When a child turns away from the faith, when a grandchild greatly disturbs you, when you go bankrupt, when you're arrested for an unjust cause, when you're suffering in prison for the cause of Christ, I want you to understand something. Heaven isn't passive. Heaven is active. The Lord Jesus Christ enters into our sufferings and regards them as His own. That's why He stood at the right hand of the Father when Stephen was being martyred. It was Christ's suffering in Stephen's suffering. And what St. Paul is saying is this. St. Paul suffered plenty. Once he became a believer on the road to Damascus, once he became a believer, he began to suffer many things. Shipwrecked. A night and the day in the deep. Beaten with rods. Whipped. Stoned and left for dead. Over and over again, St. Paul suffered. In fact, holding your hand there for a moment, we're coming back there. Turn to the right to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And listen to these words. Paul saying these words here. And he says, let's see, 110. 1 Timothy 1.10. I'm sorry. No. 2 Timothy 2.10. There we go. 2 Timothy 2.10, page 1853. He says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal joy. Getting it in its context, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am what? Suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. What's he saying? He's saying that if we are real Christians, we're going to be tempted. He's saying that if we are true to Christ, sooner or later we're going to be persecuted. St. Paul said, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He didn't say all people who live godly lives will be persecuted. He said all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now think of that persecution for a moment as we turn back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, page 1832. What does some of that suffering involve? Well, we think immediately in light of Revelation chapter 6 of those who have been put to death for the cause of Christ. But wait with me for a moment. Think of Job. Think of Job in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Job has been afflicted for the cause of Christ, although he doesn't know it. Job is being afflicted by Satan, though he doesn't even know Satan exists. If we read the book, it's pretty apparent that Job just thinks God's just doing some arbitrary thing. It's only in the first two chapters and at the end that we realize who Satan is and his lust to destroy Christians. The evil that you experience in this life... Under the overarching sovereignty of God, God's immutable, eternal decree, underneath that, 
There's a war between Christ and Satan. And under that war, Satan is a roaring lion. He just lusts to destroy you. He craves your pain. And he wants you to curse God and die. And sometimes Satan can speak through the dearest person in our life. Curse God and die, Job. That's what his wife said. Curse God and die. Give up. Give up your faith. Why do you still hold on to your faith in God? Curse God and die. I want you to reflect with me for a moment. Not just when you stand before a Nero or a Diocletian, but when you stand before the doctor and he says, you've got two months to live and the pain is significant and it gets worse. And voices come to you and they say, curse God and die. Why do you hold on to your faith in Christ? Why do you hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ? How can you possibly be cheerful in the midst of such pain and suffering and disappointment? I will submit to you as an application of the Scripture that in all our suffering, if we are really believers... It's suffering for Jesus. You have an opportunity to share your faith. You have an opportunity to tell people about the Lord Jesus. Even in an ICU. Even when your bones are killing you with pain. You have an opportunity. How can you possibly be cheerful? How can you possibly hold on to your faith? How can you possibly confess the Lord Jesus Christ? How can you possibly say that God is a good God and He hasn't forgotten us? I'm submitting to you, not as a direct teaching of the text in Revelation 6, but as an application that all Christian suffering has a natural root, a demonic root, and ultimately under the absolute immutable decree of God, a decree for our good and our blessedness. So when we suffer, when we're in pain, when we want to cry out and curse, when we want to just call down judgment on God, when we can maintain our faith with a cheerful spirit, we're witnessing for Christ. We're witnessing for Christ. And what I want you to understand in Colossians 1.24, in this life, as we pray for those who torment us, we pray with the prayer of Stephen in this world, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the Lord Jesus' prayer, actually. But we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. But dear ones, I must say this. When Christ... Body has fulfilled its suffering. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're waiting for in Revelation chapter 6. When we filled up what is still lacking in Christ's afflictions, when we have suffered for His sake, and He accounts our suffering as His suffering, when that is done and that is completed, what happens? With the holiness of heaven, With the praying of saints who have been glorified and who sin no longer, the cry for God's judgment comes crashing down. That's the reality of the world in which we live. Our neighbors, people that may mistreat us, people who lie about us, 
People who curse us sometimes to our face. People who've done us wrong. We pray for them to be saved. Because, dear ones, what you read about when he opens the sixth seal is an answer to the cries of God's righteous saints in heaven pleading with God for justice to be done in this world. But till that point, pray for the lost. You get angry at politicians? That's why I don't watch television. I I can't watch it. I read the news, but I can't watch it. I'm afraid I'll take something and uh, destroy the TV. Politics is the art of deception. And if it makes you mad, you know what we should do? It should drive us to our knees. Oh Lord, this person is bound under the deception of the powers of this darkness of this age. Please set this man free. Please, Lord, please open the eyes of this woman. Show her her sin. Show her the consequences of her sin. Show her the destiny that she faces for her sin. Please, Lord, spare them from hell. But beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is coming a day when no one will be interceding for you if you're not a Christian anymore. When no one will be saying to the Lord, please, Lord, Please turn her heart. Please turn his heart. Please save them. Lord, please cause the pain and suffering they're going through. Please cause the disappointments they're facing in this life to lead them to the foot of the cross where they'd really and truly be saved. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, here we are on the 28th day of November of 2021. At some point in time, When God's purpose in Christ has been fulfilled, when the world has been converted to Christ according to God's eternal decree, what remains for those who are unsaved? You read about it in the opening of the sixth seal of Revelation 6. It's so horrible. So horrible. Won't you pray for the loved ones that you love? Won't you pray for children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren truly to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Because today is the day of salvation. When this passing world is done, when sinks yon glaring sun, then we'll know, really know, how much we owe. But also, when we hear the wicked start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, That's what awaits the world around you. Neighbors, political leaders. Pray. Pray now the prayer of Stephen, the prayer of Jesus in this world, knowing that soon you will be praying the prayer of the martyrs under the throne. May we pray. Lord, we plead with you that you will give us a good and cheerful heart, no matter what afflictions and pressures we face whether it's torment in a marriage, torment over children and grandchildren, torment at work, Lord, whatever may come to our way in the future, we pray that we can maintain a cheerful spirit, a spirit that confesses the Lord Jesus Christ is good, and that in all our suffering, He suffers, and that we are filling up what is lacking in those sufferings. For Jesus' sake, amen.